A quick trigger warning. You're about to hear Alex Jones' actual voice. I feel like this should be a disclaimer that is added before every Alex Jones message, nonetheless. Bizarre feeling. To know you did nothing wrong, to know there's no evidence you did anything wrong, to know that you had no motive, and to know that you tried to stop what happened. And quite frankly, I'm not asking for a medal, but everybody else just stood there. And then the thousand undercover FBI agents and hostage rescue team people that were there on record sat there while I tried to stop what was happening when I got there in the middle of it. I didn't turn thousands away from going in. Season 2, Episode 11, Midterm Election Defeat. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the January 6, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Kuhn. The intro this week, of course, was provided by Alex Jones, noted drunk driver and slanderer of dead children, uh, who reports that he was in no ways affiliated with the effort to obstruct the counting of the electoral votes on January 6th uh, by Congress in our nation's capital. Despite the fact that, of course, he led the procession, uh, the march from the ellipse to the Capitol, and then was uh, deploying troops around the Capitol, like a general, leading them where they needed to go. Alex Jones wants you to know that he did nothing wrong, apparently. So, yeah, I I don't know that that, that's really worth very much. Of course, again, Alex Jones, deeply involved, deeply connected to many people who were involved in the effort to obstruct the counting of the electoral votes. Now, I had originally intended this to be a, a short bonus episode, Uh, The clock is ticking on the public hearings that are scheduled to begin on Thursday, June 9th. I was hoping to put out three episodes last month, but instead I got caught up in summarizing the discovery material in support of Oathkeeper Ed Vallejo's request to be released from pretrial detention. Uh, Ultimately, that one probably should have been a two-parter, but it is what it is, as General Walker would say. Now, if you haven't listened, please do, and be sure to check out the links in the show notes where I might link to the relevant materials, as always. Pay attention to the part in Exhibit 10 that focuses on the pods described as working in concert to discover election fraud, i.e. to fabricate evidence of election fraud. I don't know how many scare quotes I I can put up uh, around that. Also, a correction. As I made clear last time, there are sometimes errors in court documents. In that particular section of the discovery material, there's a rather strange error. What was ascribed to Mr. Kelly Meggs in that material was not, in fact, him. Rhodes introduces someone as Kelly. On the transcript, it says Kelly Meggs. In fact, it's not. It was a different Kelly, Kelly Sorrell, the Oath Keeper's general counselor, who is as yet unindicted. Thank you to the people who pointed this out to me. Um, and despite multiple FBI interviews, she's unindicted. Uh, but apparently was a participant on the call, despite what the government's actual evidence says, right? It's not Kelly Meggs, it's Kelly Sorrell. I deeply regret the error in reporting that the person in the transcript was uh, Meggs rather than Sorrell, especially since I actually recall reading that there had been a mistake, uh, and I, I knew about that, but when I was reading through, there were, you know, it said Meggs, and then there were 
references to a person's gender, I just assumed this was a transcription error of some kind and that perhaps that's what it was referring to because this person is referred to as she, and of course Megs is a he, doesn't sound like that uh, a, a she, but again, uh, somehow perhaps they, during the transcription and or editing process that, that that had gotten mixed up and that that was the error. I didn't expect that the government would have an entirely incorrect person. So, a, a kind of a strange error to make. Um, nonetheless, I, I want to put that correction out there uh, because, you know, factual correctness is, of course, important. Now, nonetheless, the, the important part that's contained in Exhibit 10 is that the Oath Keepers organization knew about and was, in some sense, working with people who were fabricating evidence of election fraud and that there were three groups that consisted of a back-channel group of QAnon people, a group affiliated with the RNC, and a group affiliated with Rudy Giuliani and the campaign. Uh, and I'm not the only one saying this. Actually, uh, I think three days after I put out my episode, uh, CNN uh, did a story on this. They're working from the same material that I am. I'm, I'm not saying they got it from me. I will leave other people to, to say that. No, I'm sure that nobody's listening to this. Um, anyway, part of what's going to go come out in the hearings, I believe anyway, is that the campaign was relying on different political appointees, people such as Peter Navarro, who we know absolutely was working on making this fake evidence of election fraud, producing this uh, in concert with people like Joanna Miller, the young woman who was on his staff, a recent graduate from American University, who produced a document that then, uh, you know, is ascribed uh, to Catherine Fries and is actually uh, then later re-edited and put out by Navarro. Uh, again, with more nonsense, fraudulent evidence of fraud. And this ties in directly with the theme of this episode, by the way, because I would like to show uh, how and why the media should stop saying certain things. Because one thing we do know about the 2020 elections, uh, 2022, rather, midterm elections, is that no matter what happens, the Trumpist movement will claim that Democrats have committed fraud. So I, I want to talk about the narrative there, and I'll get back to that in a minute. So, again, there are three pods that are working, they're described by the Oath Keepers as early as November 9th. Uh, and again, you know, there are indications to believe that this may have been happening as early as September, if not earlier. And I also like to point you also um, to the, the broader scheme that Rhodes really enthusiastically latches onto, uh, which he describes as having two parts, uh, invoking the Insurrection Act and declassifying everything. Uh, although, you know, there are other parts to the plan. I mean, there's more like nine parts if you actually break it out. Uh, you know, I mean, step one, don't uh, acknowledge the, the actual election results, right? Don't concede. Step two, uh, declassify everything. Step three, invoke the Insurrection Act, etc. Anyway, this part of the scheme implies that the Oath Keepers had knowledge of or took part in some plotting that touches on people much closer to Donald Trump himself. And during the Vallejo detention case and some of the other proceedings and filings, the AOSAs have specifically said that the government's theory of the case has changed to include actions taken before and after January 6th to enable Trump to remain in office past his rightful elected term. And again, that what does that mean? That's not just referring to the Oath Keepers case. That's referring to all the other cases. So I believe that ultimately these seditious conspiracy cases will be tied together, and they'll show that there were efforts 
before the election uh, and their efforts in the months and weeks after the election, even after January 6th, in an effort to try to, uh, in effect, nullify the will of the people. So it's this kind of material in the lower level cases that hopefully will help wind up figuring in you know higher level cases. As we approach the June 9th milestone, the beginning of the public hearings, a uh, little less than a month away, we're turning a corner in the show and in the overall process. And so uh, I would like to pay less attention uh, to members of the mob, these ordinary criminal defendants that stormed the Capitol, and even some of the conspiracy cases. Uh, because I think that from now on, the focus of the committee is going to take, be front and center. And they're going to focus on uh, persons and actions that are most relevant to the circle of plotters who were uh, around Trump, or even, you know, as we've seen perhaps, trying to influence Trump. So I know, you know, I've talked in earlier episodes about what implicitly I believe is like a two-track investigation uh, that, you know, may or may, may or may not be supported by the evidence. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, the political part, the level of, you know, sort of the, what you could call VIPs uh, is going to be, that stuff is finally going to happen. And so the show itself is going to focus more and more on these people who are, uh, you know, close to Trump, uh, affiliated with Trump some way, in some way. People at the RNC, right, we've been pointed in the correct direction, one might imagine, by people involved in this effort themselves. Uh, people affiliated with QAnon, this back-channel pod. Uh, and, of course, the Giuliani pals, right? People who are, um, you know, close to uh, the campaign. I already mentioned that, but, again, it's all one interconnected effort. And so uh, we know for sure that there are grand juries operating in D.C. that are operating to look into the organizers and the plannings of the rallies. And, you know, I know people think that, oh, grand juries, well, they, you know, we would know. We don't know. So there may be people who are looking into these election fraud efforts as well, right? I certainly expect the, the, the Eastman fraudulent elector scheme is going to figure heavily in all of this as we move forward to the public hearings beginning on June 9th, where there will be at least eight of them, hopefully most of them broadcast in prime time on American television. Now, I'll be the first to admit that there's been some public evidence to refute this two-track theory, right? Uh, there have been members of the committee publicly expressing their frustration with the Department of Justice. And it could be that I myself have fallen victims to the assumptions of functionalism that I've appointed to in describing mainstream political science. I may have assumed too much, put too much faith in the idea that our institutions are even capable of functioning either as intended or as necessary to support the rule of law and the practice of electoral democracy. I pray that I'm not wrong. I I'm willing to say, you know, but I could be, right? Now, my supposition here is that we'll know soon enough, one way or another. And in the event that nothing happens, each of us will have to ask ourselves and each other the question of what it is that must be done in defense of democracy in these perilous times. It's been a little less than a week since the last episode. 
But let's turn to the numbers anyway with regard to the, the various uh, arrests and court proceedings. As always, sourced from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 791 individuals charged, an increase of seven since our last episode. There have been a total of 378 indictments, holding steady for a third episode in a row. Uh, Stalling out there, looks like they're focusing on other areas. Four deceased, no change there. One dismissal, same as always, one acquittal. 259 convictions, an increase of 32 since the last episode. 125 sentencings, an increase of 9 since the last episode. So that's actually a pretty good week for arrests and convictions. Uh, seven in, you know, as many days. Uh, that, that's a lot. And it was a record week for plea deals. In fact, uh, I usually put these out every two weeks, and that number is bigger than any two-week period in the last year. And yet it's, it's only one week. So they're moving these defendants through the pipeline. And as we get to the more serious cases... Uh, and have fewer of these parading defendants, we're going to be the defendants pleading guilty to more serious charges and eventually sentenced for these more serious charges, uh, many of them to long terms of imprisonment in the Bureau of Prisons. So we're going to be at 300 convictions before you know it. And, uh, you know, although there are a lot of cases still pending, we can take some measure of the government's success rate in bringing cases in the January 6th attack. Uh, if you look at it, there's 259 convictions, oh, one acquittal, that is a 99.62% success rate, which oddly enough is actually in line with the government's typical overall success rate, um, at least according to one 2019 study. Not really going to do an entirely new profile this week again, trying to focus a little bit less on these individual uh, members of the mob, these various uh, paraders and assaulters. Um, I'd like to return instead to a defendant that I've mentioned several times now, Avery McCracken, uh, a 69-year-old assault on federal officer defendant from Telluride, Colorado. You'll remember McCracken has a long criminal history and sometimes lives in his car and has also been unknown to associate with Representative Lauren Boebert, which is why I've singled him out for special attention more than once. Uh, and he is, have, of course, has posed for a picture of her, of him with her, and she appears to be handing him a $100 bill. Um, and so, you know, I've asked questions about, you know, why is that? What, what was he doing there? You know, that is awfully suspicious. Um, and, of course, when every time I've done that, it's like, it's not that suspicious. So someone actually pointed it out to me the other day. It's like, I should clarify. To me, it's kind of obvious what's going on, but I've never really spelled it out. If you look in the background, there's a table. It's a folding table. If you've ever worked on campaigns, you know these little folding tables that people set up. Um, there's a one of those awnings, and it's got things, uh, pieces of paper handed, you know, with what appears to be printing on them. that says, you know, cash payments and check. And there are two elderly ladies back there. One is enjoying snacks. One of them has an envelope, which is probably full of cash. There are Lauren Boebert yard signs, and everyone present, including Boebert herself, are wearing Lauren Boebert for Congress t-shirts. So this is a campaign 
setup place, right? This is a place where you would send people out to do various different kinds of campaign activities, such as distributing yard signs or registering voters or knocking on doors. Um, so, you know, what's unusual here is that, of course, McCracken is, this appears to be day labor, right? Uh, in, you know, I've been doing this for over 30 years, you're mainly talking about volunteers. But if you don't have volunteers, it's not a day labor situation, right? People who are hired, uh, generally speaking, get, get hired, right? Uh, not Bober. Bober is running a cash on the barrel head operation. Uh, just handing out $100 bills to anybody who goes and does the kind of work. Um, and again, you know, Telluride, the are from Telluride. It's a small community. Um, but again, there is that question. Hmm, did, did Bobert approach him at some point and say, Hey, Avery, you know, we, we need to go assault the Capitol. Um, so again, you know my theory, right, that I've posited many times that there's uh, a non-trivial number of people who have many criminal histories uh, who are not people you wouldn't would ordinarily expect to find at a, uh, at a political rally or event, especially since they came from all around the country, and many of them appear to be of modest means. Um, and these are folks who, you know, oftentimes are, are living in various precarious situations. I've already identified the, the list in an earlier episode and talked about that um, at length. But what I want to focus on again here uh, on is what happened with McCracken this past week on May 9th. Uh, prosecutors and McCracken's attorney uh, came to an agreement. And the agreement was basically a joint agreement that McCracken should be released from pretrial detention. So he's currently being held in was the Little Neck Detention uh, Jail, Regional Jail in Virginia. Um, he's going to get sent home using the marshal service to Colorado. So, what happened with this? Well, the apparent reason for his release from pretrial detention is that new evidence uh, has, that the government has uh, gathered that they feel is sufficient to show that McCracken is not guilty of one of the charges against him. McCracken was originally charged with seven counts including a charge of assault on an officer resulting in bodily injury. Now, they've reviewed the, the evidence yet again, and the government now says that McCracken's attack on the officer doesn't appear to be the one that it caused the injury to the officer's face that resulted in the bodily injury account. Right? In the original charging documents, there's a picture of an officer who took a selfie uh, where apparently he had, had like an injury. It looked like he had scabbed over already on his face. Uh, from, you know, uh, where he'd been struck. Well, in the melee, apparently, you know, this officer, like many officers, was attacked by many different assailants. And, um, it you know, the government now believes that McCracken's attack does not appear to be the one that caused this particular injury to this particular officer. And so they've dropped that count. Now, McCracken is not off the hook, right? Uh, he's still charged with fighting with police. Uh, just not causing bodily injury, and faces five other counts. So, you know, I, I don't know what, why necessarily they're, they're releasing him. Um, this, again, is someone with no fixed address and a long criminal history. Maybe it's kind of a way to, for the government to say, I'm sorry for overcharging you, uh, but they are sending him back to Colorado. 
Now, again, it's curious to me that he's being released. Uh, even if he didn't cause bodily injury, he stands accused of assaulting federal officers. And to my mind, someone who assaults a police officer is arguably a very great danger to the community. If you are the kind of person who's willing to get into a fight with an armed officer who has arrest powers, that raises some big questions, to my mind, about what you would do out in the community, right? You know, again, they're arguing January 6th was this, well, this is a one-time event, it's unique. Yeah, but uh, it's not unique in Avery McCracken's history. It has a long criminal history going back to the 1990s. So, that being the case, you know, all that, you would think that he would have pretty strict conditions of release, right? Well, that's, that's the rub here in this case. Last time, I did a deep dive in the material in Ed Vallejo's case. You know, he himself was, he was nonviolent, right? But he was nonetheless charged with, um, you know, he's not accused of a violent offense anyway. This is someone who's a gun fetish. I don't know that he's a nonviolent person. Uh, but he's not facing charges of violence in the capital insurrection cases. Nonetheless, because he's charged with the obstruction count and seditious conspiracy, um, he is a third-party custodian, his wife. He's going to be handed over to the custody of his wife, Debbie. And that's not uncommon. In fact, there are lots of other restrictive cases, uh, conditions that we're seeing. We're seeing people subject to home confinement. We're seeing people subject to GPS monitoring. People with lower levels of offenses than Avery McCracken are getting stricter conditions than what is described uh, in McCracken's uh, release conditions. So, you know, in McCracken's case, for example, there's no custodian, nothing. So you have someone who's charged with this very serious charge, you know, seditious conspiracy, right, Ed Vallejo, who's given a custodian, um, but nonetheless isn't a violent defendant. And then you have someone who faces allegations of violence against officers, and you, you know, are not going to give him a custodian. I mean, that, to me, seems kind of strange. I mean, he's going to be under supervision of the U.S. Probation Office uh, out in Colorado. And, uh, you know, he has to contact his probation officer within 24 hours of his release. So you go through the conditions, and many of them appear fairly standard, right? He's supposed to look for work. Um, he has to surrender any passport he may have. And uh, the document also says that his travel is restricted to a five-county area in southwest Colorado. Again, kind of strange. And there are counties surrounding Telluride, right? Those are big counties out in Colorado. So, I mean, you know, five counties in, in southwest Colorado is probably bigger than President Biden's home state. Um, so that's, that's kind of odd. You know, if, again, if you're looking at all these defendants who are getting things like home confinement, GPS monitoring, you know, Avery McCracken gets to, to wander around uh, wherever he wants to. Um, he is not permitted, of course, to have contact with anyone uh, charged with a crime in the capital insurrection uh, cases from January 6th. And, of course, because McCracken, like many criminal defendants, has had issues with substance abuse in the past, he's ordered not to drink alcohol to excess and is not to uh, possess or use any illegal drugs and also to submit himself to random drug testing, which, again, pretty standard. And they've also checked a box indicating that McCracken is supposed to submit himself for medical or psychiatric care as his probation officer advises, and also for substance abuse treatment 
as his probation officer advises. So that's not necessarily standard, right? So um, we don't know. Now, it's all very curious to me. These, these aren't restrictive conditions. These are the kind of conditions that you might see for a parading defendant. And McCracken has no fixed address. And he may require mental health treatment, right? That's kind of a red flag. He's had problems with substance abuse. And he has not always complied with courts in the past. That's part of his criminal history. So, you know, and, and you go back to his charging documents. No fixed address. I mean, this is someone who, in, they actually use the quotation marks around the word reside. I went back and checked. They're like, reside. Uh, you know, he resides in Telluride. I mean, you know, he does, but he doesn't have a fixed address. So, what's going on here? Um, now, if you were going to some kind of residential treatment program, that might be indicated, uh, or it might not, right? They may simply be awaiting the determination of the probation office. So, that's not as weird, perhaps, as, as I'm making it out to be. On the other hand, if they're not, if they haven't already determined that this is someone who's going to provide uh, help with either uh, psychological or uh, substance abuse issues and is going to be monitored working closely with a probation officer who's specifically trained to deal with such things, then it looks like they're dumping a violent homeless defendant out into the community. Um, just, you know, it depends on how close the supervision is. I mean, with his history, the fact he doesn't have a custodian, his substance abuse issues... This is someone who is at high risk of violating his conditions of release. Maybe they've made arrangements to house him, but, you know, it's just really strange that he doesn't have the same kinds of conditions that similarly situated conditions, have, you know, since similarly situated defendants have had, especially since he's been, you know, in custody for, you know, nearly a year now. So, really, I mean, the only thing I, I think of is, you know, maybe it comes down to the fact that the government, it screwed up and they, they overcharged him and so this is kind of a reward? I don't know. Or maybe, and this is, you know, crazy uh, theory here, um, maybe he has offered information. Maybe he has had communications with someone uh, related to January 6th and maybe he has been able to give helpful and useful testimony. Who knows? Um, but looking, you know, I mean, overall, again, uh, you know, I, I know I've described people like him as uh, potentially violent defendants, uh, men who have histories of violence who were possibly actively recruited. Um, but there is also a sense in which these kinds of people are vulnerable, right? They are oftentimes in, um, you know, like group housing situations, like uh, Shane Jenkins, you know, uh, who was at a halfway house run by, run by the Baptists. Or they're living out of their car, like Josiah Kenyon or uh, Avery McCracken. Um, and so, you know, again, they, you know, a lot depends upon whether or not, you know, they all just came of their own volition, you know, could be, right? Um, or whether or not there was actually, as I've hypothesized, uh, but again, that is speculative. I'm telling you that's speculative, so take, take it with a grain of salt that um, someone was out there actively looking for people such as Amy McCracken, uh, who are people who, you know, they were able to put in a position where, you know what, it's like, yeah, go do this job for me, you know, um, attack some police officers, 
you get a hotel room, you get a, a free flight, you get uh, three squares, uh, and a really nice bed uh, with high thread count sheets. Um, and who knows, maybe you can all have dinner, uh, we'll give you a per diem, and you can go have dinner with the Oath Keepers at the Olive Garden when it's all, all said and done. I don't know. Um, but it, it is very odd that they are releasing him at this time. And uh, by the way, I mean, this part of it at least isn't all that atypical. The government has a hard time deciding what to do with people who don't have those stable kind of family and home connections. Um, and so th their release can sometimes be a little bit different than other defendants uh, who, you know, who have those kinds of things, who have the adequate levels of support in the community. So I know that I oftentimes, and you know, <laughs> I'm rooting for the government clearly, but uh, there is a sense in which uh, it does raise questions, of course, about the criminal justice system itself and how it is, deals especially with um, Classes, categories of people who may be regarded as vulnerable, right? I mean, there's reason to believe in his conditions that he has issues with either substance abuse and or mental health. So I don't want to really speculate too much about uh, that. But again, um, that being the case, you know, it raises questions. And I'm sure that the probation office, with his history, is probably going to be paying, one would hope, close attention to Mr. McCracken. A couple of other quick items before we get on to uh, the main theme of this particular episode. Uh, the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack has, as effective May 2nd, made some more information requests from three more members, Andy Biggs, Mo Brooks, and Ronnie Jackson. Uh, these members join Jim Jordan, Scott Perry, and Kevin McCarthy as members of Congress who have outstanding information requests from the January 6th committee. Now, of course, these are non-subpoenas. Um, and the reason why this is the case is because we have legislative norms and practices that have been basically borrowed from the medieval English parliament with regard to the, the, you know, the privileges uh, of members. Now, if I were designing a constitution from scratch, I would definitely give Congress, the House, uh, I, you know, any legislative body should have the ability to investigate its own members and to compel them to uh, speak to those investigations, to testify. And yet, that's not what we have here in the United States. So, we have the oldest constitution in the world, and yet some of the parts that, of norms and practices that we borrowed uh, from the medieval English parliament... Maybe it may not be a great idea. So these information requests, uh, again, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that a lot of this relates to information that the committee already has. Um, so, you know, the testimony of these members may not be absolutely necessary. I do not expect that they will comply. They have indicated that they are, you know, above the law and aren't going to comply in any event. Um, Mo Brooks, the committee is interested in, uh, a public statement that he's made where he's asked, said that the president, uh, referring to Trump, had asked him to rescind the election of 2020. Uh, again, that you know, there's no provision, that, that's not a legal thing that you could do. And um, Brooks himself, to his credit, realized it, right? So, I mean, there is, you know, of course, he's deeply involved, but he at least did make an effort to somewhat cover himself 
uh, with a press release in which he said, neither the U.S. Constitution nor the U.S. Code permit me permit what President Trump has asked or asked. Period. So they want to they want to ask him about those things, uh, you know, that Trump asked him to do something illegal, and he know he knew it at the time. Uh, what did he know? When did he know it? And what did he do about it? Uh, of course, Brooks himself deeply implicated in all this. Also, Andy Biggs, um, who they have, you know, a whole slew of reasons to talk to Andy Biggs, listed in their letter. Uh, they want to talk, ask him about a December 21st meeting of the House Freedom Caucus, in which um, basically they talk about the, the fraudulent Eastman scheme, and they point to uh, a recent court ruling that shows that the Eastman fraudulent elector scheme winds up violating at least two federal laws. And so they want to ask Mr. Biggs, Representative Biggs, uh, about you know that meeting. Again, they have they have information about that meeting from other sources. Um but you know they want they want to talk to Andy Biggs about. And of course the which we've talked about here I'm sure before the Ali Alexander connection, uh where you know Ali Alexander publicly said that uh, he had met with uh, Representative Biggs and two other members of the House, uh, and you know that that basically it was their idea to you know bring protesters to Washington uh, to obstruct the counting of the electoral votes on January sixth. They're they're curious about that, uh, what Biggs has to say about it, and they also would like to know about communications that uh, Biggs had with Mark Meadows uh, in the Meadows text regarding um, his efforts to seek assistance. Uh, from various state-level people and officials uh, to try to, again, block the, the rightful election of President Joe Biden in the 2020 presidential election. And finally, they want to know about why Andy Biggs, if he did nothing wrong, why was he apparently implicated in efforts to seek a pardon? And, uh, you know, again, why, why does that matter? Well, Quote, we would like to understand the details of the request for a pardon, more specific reasons why a pardon was sought, and the scope of the proposed pardon. Part of accepting a pardon, of course, is that you are accepting your guilt. You have some cognizance of your own guilt. So, you know, you don't ask for a pardon if you don't think you're guilty of something, right? So, you know, great reasons to talk to Andy Biggs. And, of course, Ronnie Jackson came up in the last show. Uh, there was chatter in the signal chats uh, that, you know, said that Jackson had valuable data that needed protecting, and as a consequence, any Oath Keepers in the building should look for Representative Jackson uh, and provide him with some personal security. Now, this one, there's no evidence that, there, you know, really demonstrates conclusively that Jackson was actually in contact with the Oath Keepers, but they want to know more about that. Also, as not uncommon in the show, there's some breaking news. Um, there are more Eastman emails, apparently. These from University of Colorado. Uh, these were obtained through a FOIA request by uh, the Colorado Ethics Institute. Shout out to them. Excellent work on their score. Um, they wanted to let the committee know that these emails exist. They say in the letter that Hey, you know about the Chapman emails. 
Well, we got these other emails, and they did a great job actually going through, collating, and uh, summarizing them. Um, I've read them as quickly as I can. And, uh, yeah, so Eastman was awarded a one-year visiting contract at the University of Colorado and for $185,000 uh, at this Benston Institute for the Study of Western Civilization. By the way, that is a kind of a, a red flag. I haven't even looked into this place. Um, but, you know, there are a, a number of these sort of conservative think tank-like little departments slash institutions uh, that are well-funded. Uh, people always think of, well, there's this, you know, universities are liberal. Uh, well, mm, there is a lot of money floating around on campuses uh, to support the activities of right-wing and even far-right-wing academics. Uh, so, you know, I suspect that uh, Professor Eastman was, was getting paid a little bit more than the going rate for his work at the University of Colorado. Now, Eastman, again, doesn't know how e emails work, and so he's using his emails to plot the overturning of the 2020 presidential election, apparently from the very first. Uh, I mean, there's some interesting bits in there. Uh, he, he wants to be reimbursed for travel uh, when, in fact, he was on a Zoom meeting uh, that was held in Philadelphia. Um, and so that's, you know, the, just a sign of his character and the, the way he operates. You know, they're giving him $185,000. And so there's all these emails back and forth about, you know what, uh, this is this is kind of a personal expense. Um, just really, just totally sketchy. Uh, but more relevant of, to the efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election results, there are more than a dozen emails between Eastman and one uh, state representative, Russell Diamond of PA, uh, Pennsylvania, um, in which he's basically trying to, uh, offering to, to edit and help with efforts to decertify the slate of electors in Pennsylvania on no substantive basis whatsoever, in fact. Um, and at one point, there, there are public hearings, they're, uh, they're held in the chamber, um, and Eastman says, well, I didn't see these hearings, but I, I'm pretty sure they have evidence of fraud, uh, you know, just assumes it, and recommends these crazy remedies such as prorating the number of votes by a certain amount so that, you know, basically, magically, Pennsylvania uh, is, is going to flip. So that, you know, again, uh, is pretty good evidence that Eastman was operating with regard to just trying to overturn the results no matter what. Um, there's no, this is not the remedy that he proposes. You know, first off, what, what they're, the votes themselves weren't weren't illegal in any way, uh, but he's raising questions about that, and then uh, proposing a remedy that is not in any way legal. Um, so that again, really, really odd. And there's also um, this more emails uh, with between the university and Eastman. Regarding his activities, uh, at some point it becomes, uh, it comes to the attention of the administration that he is doing some work for the Trump campaign and uh, the university administration gets involved saying, well, wait a minute, we're paying you $185,000 uh, to work here at the university. What, you know, we have rules about your sources of outside income. You need to be able to comply with those. Uh, 
And he writes, quote, President Trump asked me to represent him in filing a motion to intervene in the pending litigation at the Supreme Court. Nothing in the pleading mentions the University of Colorado, but I want to give you a heads up anyway. It was just filed a few moments ago. So, I mean, you know, that's, again, just not the kind of thing I think the university, uh, you know, perhaps outside of this uh, Center for the Study of Western Civilization, wanted to be involved with. And so there's this flurry of activity uh, within the university, between the, the, the deans uh, and Eastman saying, um, you know, you, you need to make sure that you are actually in compliance with the rules here at the University of Colorado. There's also a email regarding uh, setting up a, a Zoom meeting uh, with Eastman and uh, a former regent of the University of Colorado, Steve Bosley, and Earl Wright, who's a chairman of the board of directors of AMG National Trust Bank and uh, a board member of a Colorado-based Common Sense Institute. And they, they're going to have a Zoom meeting to discuss the, the topic, Hillary, bribes, and election stealing, which they spell S-T-E-E-L-I-N-G. Uh, that's forwarded by Patrick Byrne. And finally, and interestingly, I think, uh, there's an email from one Carter Mateer, uh, who is uh, some sort of fellow and uh, is at, apparently has had dinner with Eastman and uh, writes, quote, I remember you mentioned that night about having a grant to pursue post-election litigation, end quote. So that is interesting. What is the source of this grant? Who is supplying grants to John Eastman to help overturn the presidential election? Uh, that's, you know, a, a very interesting question. I suspect that that may be reason to investigate the finances of whatever organization was, you know, perhaps trying to subsidize John Eastman's efforts to unconstitutionally overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. So, and kind of on a personal note, I mean, John Eastman, the way he comports himself throughout, just absolute impunity. It's utterly consistent with the way he's regard, acted with regard to uh, the committee. He just, you know, he thinks that he, he should be reimbursed for his internet usage when he's uh, on flights, you know, doing different uh, things that are, again, involved with overturning an election. And somehow, you know, University of Colorado is going to pay for it. Uh, and, you know, he doesn't think that the rules of the university apply to him uh, at all then, you know, he feels like he's being singled out for his political beliefs. It's not your political beliefs, Mr. Eastman. It's actually your your conduct, right? Uh, don't try to overturn a presidential election while you're an employee of a state institution and think that it's okay because, as these uh, emails point out, he, as a University of Colorado employee, uh, swears to uphold both the United States and Colorado constitutions. So you don't get to do this on the government dime. And now on with the show. So, as we begin, I would like to give the too-long-didn't-read version. Right? I would like to say this simply and plainly. People who work in the media, journalists, pundits, and various other opinion leaders, really anyone with a platform, anyone who has a voice, whether it be your, your Twitter feed or Facebook or you know your podcast, whatever you've got, really, all these people, everyone, 
if you care about democracy, you need to stop saying that Democrats will inevitably lose seats in Congress and therefore lose control of Congress in the upcoming midterm elections. You need to stop it. I know that it feels great. I know that it feels like you're repeating something meaningful and substantive that enriches our understanding of our political circumstances, but you need to stop it. And the reason why is related to why the title of the episode. You know that no matter what happens in the midterms, whether Democrats lose or whether they win, but especially if they win, Republicans, the Trumpist movement in particular, the extremists who are trying to destroy electoral democracy in America, these people will say that it was the result of fraud. And when you say that Republican victory is inevitable, ask yourself the counterfactual. What if that doesn't happen? So that's the, the, the summary, right? Um, and the rest of the episode is basically the reasons why, you know, again, people should stop doing this. Three basic reasons why people need to stop saying that Democrats will inevitably lose control of Congress in the upcoming midterm elections. Firstly, the claim is factually incorrect. Secondly, it's a defeatist narrative. And thirdly, most importantly, as I said, it reinforces the attack on the faith of elections and democracy and voting rights in the United States. So what happens if Democrats actually retain control of Congress or even pick up seats? What happens with this inevitability narrative, right? It will have helped to foster uh, any resulting political violence by Trumpists because they will make the claim that the election was stolen. Um, there's a very high likelihood that this Trumpist movement is going to engage in political violence if they see people, you know, keep stoking these claims that, you know, they're confidently asserting that Democrats are inevitably going to lose control of Congress in the midterm elections. That reinforces what they already believe. And if Democrats win, they're going to turn to all that and use it to attack democracy. Now, I realize sometimes on the show, you know, I will speculate or guess or offer an opinion. But I always try to qualify those statements by saying that that is what I'm doing. This is not one of those times. I am more certain of the fact that these statements are dangerous to democracy in the United States than the people who are making these statements are that they are accurate. I am more certain that my claim that what you're saying is dangerous to democracy is true than your claim that, you, you know, Democrats are inevitably going to lose control of Congress. Now, Firstly, you know, we've heard this before, right? We've heard this claim that, you know, Democrats, midterms, if you control the party, uh, you know, the party that is in control of the White House inevitably loses seats in Congress. Um, again, you know, we've heard before, right? So you don't necessarily need to repeat that every election cycle. We've all heard it before. You know, I mean, I know why you say it, right? I mean, members of the media have column inches to fill. They have airtime to fill. But they need to stop saying this. I don't know why the mainstream media has become absolutely addicted to this idea as if it's the one thing anyone knows about midterm elections, but they need to stop repeating this claim because it's factually inaccurate, fostered defeatism, and actually increases the risk of political violence if Democrats win. You know, guys, just buy yourselves some nicotine gum, 
Do whatever you have to do to wean yourselves off of this idea. You need to stop saying it. Just for this one election cycle. That's it. Just for this one election cycle. One midterm cycle. Just pretend that you don't actually know the future for this one election cycle. I'm a big fan of trying to normalize the phrase, I don't know. Try to emphasize it. Pr practice saying it in front of a mirror. Someone asks you what's going to happen in the midterm election. Say, I don't know who's going to win. You don't know who's going to win. Um, and so I'm not going to pretend that I don't. Try saying something like that. That's actually a smarter thing to say than simply repeating something that's been repeated in every midterm election cycle for the last 40 years uh, as if it was somehow new and different. So I'm going to take the time to explain in more detail the three reasons why I think people in the media and opinion journalism should stop saying that Democrats are going to inevitably lose the 2022 midterm elections. This relates directly to January 6th because these claims bolster false claims of fraud. And that's the title of the episode, right? Midterm election fraud. They're going to say that there is fraud in the midterm elections. And the only fraud is the claim of fraud. So if you are fond of, know someone who's fond of repeating this phrase, this claim that, you know, uh, the party in power control the executive branch always and inevitably loses seats in Congress, please take notes. If you find this argument persuasive, make the case to them. Tell them why they need to stop saying this, because they urgently do. First reason, and I'm probably going to spend more time on this reason than the others, it's factually inaccurate. I know I probably repeat myself often, and yeah, I'm a political scientist. I have some understanding of the discipline. One of the things that people need to understand about political science, and perhaps the other social sciences more generally, today I'm going to just stick with political science. In social sciences, political science, we don't have laws. Okay? It's not physics. We don't have these universal laws. Now, there are people who would like to reshape the discipline so that it could be more like physics, but it's not, and we're not there yet. We don't have anything like the law of conservation of energy or Newtonian laws of motion. That's not a thing that applies uh, in particular to science, particularly with regard to, you know, even these, these mid-level claims. Uh, they, they always have to be qualified. So when people assert the claim that Democrats are inevitably going to lose seats in the upcoming midterm election, they do this with a faith that you're actually rarely going to find among political scientists themselves. Really, they're misunderstanding the project, or at least the success rate, of modern political science. Political science doesn't have a single law as firmly established as, you know, again, physics, right? Uh, conservation of energy. Uh, it, we just don't. It's not a thing that exists. Now, we do have things that we sometimes call laws, but that's speaking very loosely. So we have Duverger's Law, which states that single-member district systems with plurality rule tend to result in two-party systems, and systems that incorporate some form of proportional representation, proportionality, produce multi-party systems, right? That's a law, and it's generally true, right? You know, Germany, for example, proportional representation, multi-party democracy. The United States, first past the post, single-member districts, you get two major parties, and only two major parties. The problem here, of course, is that you've got some weasel words right in there, right? 
Uh, this is a law. And yet, you've got this word tend right in there. Yeah, single-member districts with plurality rule tend to result in two-party systems. And the word tend is doing a lot of work here. There are plenty of other examples, despite this tendency, where electoral systems like ours produce multi-party systems. For example, India, the largest democracy in the world. And, you know, I totally accept the idea that electoral rules structure party systems, but that's about as strong a claim as you can make. If you have a theory of the interaction between electoral rules and party systems that doesn't account for the party structure of the largest democracy in the world, uh, it's pretty good sign that, that what you have isn't actually a law. It's not a law, right? Uh, not in the same sense that the laws of physics uh, and the so-called hard sciences are laws. So, again, political science really, you know, despite the efforts of many people who've worked very hard, there's really, the, we acknowledge no such thing as laws, uh, at least as far as it's useful, you know, for the punditocracy. They would like to imagine that we have these things, but we don't. Um, nonetheless, people persist in this idea, right? It's simply a fact for them, a fact that in every midterm election, the party in power of the, the executive branch loses control or loses seats in the legislative branch. And to my mind, that shows a, a rather shallow conception of how electoral politics actually works. What do we mean when we ask the question, does the president's party lose seats in Congress in midterm election years? Now, the answer is, is you know, unequivocal. Yes, you know, the president's party usually loses seats in midterm elections. I absolutely agree with that. But there's another weasel word here. Usually. Do we have a theory of why this happens? Yeah, we do. Lots of people have theories. I have my own theory, which I'm not going to get into right now. But what I would like to do is to return to the core of the question. Why is it necessary to use the word usually in this context? And the answer, of course, is that it doesn't always happen. Right? So you're saying it's inevitable, but we know empirically it doesn't always happen. So, um, we should also observe that this effect happens more commonly in the House than the Senate, and ask why that is. And the answer here, of course, is, uh, partly, is that there, there are three classes of Senate seats that rotate. A third of the Senate is elected in every election cycle. Put a pin in that idea. I will return to that question in a moment. So, even in the House, where the effect is strongest, uh, it doesn't always happen. And it happens less often in the Senate. And so when we talk about whether the party of an incumbent president loses seats in Congress in a midterm, we're mainly talking about the House. And even then, we have to acknowledge that this is a thing that doesn't always happen. So what are we really talking about is the concept of an average. All things being equal, on average, the president's party loses seats in Congress. And then we can measure that average and make comparisons to the actual situation that we're in in any given Congress. And if we're very smart and we know many things, uh, you know, we don't have to spew this Philistine pig ignorance about, you know, how this is necessarily going to happen because history is our guide. Because we live in an average year and the average thing is going to happen. Averages can be deceiving, right? The average thing that usually happens. That's deceiving. 
Um, you know, Carl Schmidt points us to the exceptional case. Averages are vulnerable to outliers, to extreme cases. If you have 100 people in a room and Elon Musk walks in, the average net worth of people in that room, even if it was $0 before, would be over $2 billion. So, you know, that bit of information, that average doesn't tell you any information about, you know, what to do when it's time to pick up the check, right? But nonetheless, this idea that, you know, what is going to happen this year is, is the same as what's going to happen or similar to what's going to happen in an average year, I'm going to say that's wrong. So, you know, when we say it's an ironclad of politics that the party in the White House also loses seats in Congress in midterm election years, we've made this implicit assumption that we should interrogate. This is an average midterm election. And, you know, again, we're going to make statements about average years. We should ask if this is one. Are we really interested in the average result here? Or are we interested in the result of this election? So, again, while I think it's useful to talk about the average result, nonetheless, we have to consider the question of cases. This is um, small in research, right? So, you know, things like public opinion research or longitudinal uh, data sets, these are, you know, oftentimes large in. Lots of cases that abound, and you can, uh, you know, use all these interesting t statistics. Midterm elections are not that. Midterm elections are actually pretty small in. Your case is an election. And that is actually, uh, you know, not the best thing that, to use statistical methods on. Why? Well, because it, they're, they're not reliable. With a small number of cases, you're not going to be able to get uh, reliable results. It's far better, in fact, to do case studies. When it comes to small-end research, it's better to interrogate each of these cases deeply than it is to rely on, you know, some kind of, something like an average, right? This, this large-end uh, kind of idea. So, you know, we're concerned with the aggregate. We're not, we're not interested in this aggregate result of elections. We're interested in what's going to happen in this election. Um... So if we only want to consider elections that comprise the universe of elections occurring under our current party system, uh, which begins after the South begins to go Republican, there's different cut points here. Um, but that's only 12 points, right? 12, 12 elections, excuse me. There are only 12 elections since the, you know, the first election, the early 70s, when uh, Republicans... Uh, began to pick up seats in the House. It's really hard to make a lot of generalizations with only 12 cases. And in two of those cases, uh, the party in power actually won seats in the House. These cases were in 1998 and 2002. So, first question you would like to ask is, are we in a situation that's somehow analogous to those cases? So, and so we need to, you know, really interrogate the situation. Um, this isn't an average of midterm election year. It's a key question, you know, are there comparable cases? I, I really don't think that there are. You can look at it in different ways. Now, this is uh, the first coronavirus midterm election. Um, more than, a, well, about a million people, in terms of excess mortality, have died in the United States during the coronavirus pandemic. So, is there a comparable case? The first midterm after a pandemic, uh, 
you could say, yeah, in the midterm election of 1922. Uh, what happened then? Now, this is, <laughs> there's, it's comparable in another way. Uh, this is actually during the administration of only two presidents who could, you know, really give Trump a, a run for his money as the, the most uh, corrupt American president in history, Warren Harding. So, you know, we still have, you know, Trump dominating political discourse, and of course this was during uh, the presidency of someone who, you know, was almost as bad in that regard as Trump. So the, the Spanish flu, the so-called Spanish flu epidemic, ran from 1918, uh, tail end of the Wilson administration, through 1920. And what happened in 1922 midterms? Well, the party of the president, the Republicans in that instance, lost seats in the House. And in fact, it was a wave election. Democrats picked up 76 seats in the House in 1922. But in the Senate, nothing happened. Net gain of zero. Again, put a pen in the Senate. We will get back to it in a minute. So we had a global pandemic and a death toll of about a million Americans, according to recent estimates. Now, using data from the uh, uh, NCHS, as of April 27th, there were 993,966 COVID deaths in the United States since the beginning of the pandemic, of which 739,530 were people aged 65 or more. According to exit polls, of course, this 65 and over age group was the only group that Trump, Trump carried in 2020, winning by 51% to Biden's 48%. One of the main reasons, by the way, that Republicans have an advantage systematically in midterm elections generally, even when they hold the White House, is that their coalition, the electorate, skews older, and the Democrats' coalition, the electorate, skews younger. And voting in midterm elections is a habit that people tend to pick up as they age. So if you have a group that is uh, the only age group that favors Trump, and it's the group that's the most likely to vote in midterm elections, and they're the most hard hit when it comes to mortality, it might affect the results a little bit. Um, just anecdotally, by the way, uh, we can say that there appears to be some relationship between affinity for Trump and taking precautions such as vaccines and masking and social distancing. We don't have data for deaths by a political party, but according to an article by Pew that I'll put in the show notes, early on, deaths surged in more densely populated areas, cities, places that were more likely to go for Biden. But during the rest of the pandemic, it shifted red, with less densely populated areas most hard hit in terms of mortality, especially in the older age group. Whenever I talk about the electorate, I always like to tell people that it's different in every election. People age into the voting age population, and people move out of the voting age population, mainly by dying. Um, we've never had an election in a pandemic that disproportionately affected older voters, especially not in, the, you know, in modern terms, right? Um, this electorate has literally been reshaped by a pandemic. Many of the people who have tragically passed away uh, were trying to take sensible precautions, but we also know that there was the effort to build a national movement around the idea that complying with COVID protocols was tyranny. Now, does that mean that excess deaths would disproportionately hit 
the America First part of the electorate, the MAGA part of the electorate, that actually does seem to be supported by the data. According to the same article I just referred to, again, linked to in the show notes, quote, in the fall of 2021, death rates in the counties most supportive of Trump were about four times as high as the counties most supportive of Biden, end quote. And it just goes on there, uh, based on differences in behavior with regard to taking COVID precautions. Quote, during the fall of 2021, roughly corresponding to the Delta wave, about 10% of Americans lived in counties with adult vaccination rates lower than 40% as of July 2021. Death rates in these low vaccination counties were about six times as high as death rates in counties where 70% or more of the adult population was vaccinated, end quote. So we have not only a, a pandemic that's selective on the basis of age, but apparently also on the rate uh, basis of behavior and of the availability of vaccination. I don't want to say that everyone who didn't get vaccinated, you know, there are people who have pre-existing conditions. There are people uh, for whom, you know, they have less access to healthcare in general. But nonetheless, much of this was, you know, behavioral, right? People believe the lies about the vaccination program. Another quote, quote, since the pandemic began, Counties representing the 20% of the population where Trump ran up his highest margins in 2020 have experienced nearly 70,000 more deaths from COVID-19 than have the counties representing the 20% of the population where Biden performed best. Overall, the COVID-19 death rate in all counties Trump won in 2020 is substantially higher than it is in counties Biden won. As of the end of February 2022, 326 per 100,000 in Trump counties and 258 per 100,000 in Biden counties. I'll say that again. So in the average Trump county per 100,000 population, and there are many counties that don't have 100,000 people in them, but bear with me, 326 people died. In the Biden counties, only 258 people died. And again, especially in close counties, there's your margins right there. So when we're making these general statements about what happens on average, we have to be aware of whether we are in average circumstances or unusual circumstances. And I would submit that holding yet another election in a pandemic where hundreds of thousands of people have died, uh, these aren't randomly distributed across the electorate, that's a pretty good indication that we are not living in average conditions. Now, I'm not cheerleading anyone dying, but when we look at the impact of COVID deaths on the electorate, I think that the Republican Party might, in hindsight, want to revisit the idea that vaccines were dangerous and tyrannical. The Herman Cain effect is real. And, you know, it's hard to use recent history as a guide to what's going on in this particular election year. That set of 12 midterm elections since the advent of our current party system, mid midterms from 1974 onward, there's no comparable case in that regard. Now, I'm generally a bit skeptical of, you know, demographic change as a, some sort of argument that's the, I don't want to say trumps all other arguments, um, but nonetheless, there are other demographic things that are happening as well. Generation Z is aging into the voting age population. The older member of members of the cohort, Generation Z, 
are 24. And so there are currently millions of people in this 18 to 24 age range, which uh, is a bit fortuitous. Yeah, 18 to 24 is actually a demographic that oftentimes um, people in public opinion research and other areas uh, that survey the population look at as, as one group. And uh, here it just so happens that, you know, it corresponds perfectly, at least this year, uh, with the totality of the universe of Generation Z citizens who are actually in the voting age population. Now, the problem with voters who are younger, generally, in electoral politics is that they vote at a lower rate than older voters. And that, by the way, is not just true of this generation. It's been true of every generation of youth. But as these cohorts age, they become more likely to vote in general and more likely to vote in midterms as well. Meanwhile, uh, the Republican Party is also enthralled to the oldest and most conservative part of their party. The median age of a Fox News viewer is 65, and there are far fewer of them than there used to be. So in addition to COVID, you also have these underlying demographic changes that were uh, underway in a, for a long time. Generation Z, of course, is also uh, more progressive, generally in terms of their uh, what we see from public opinion research, and it's more diverse in many ways than the uh, generations that are making their exit from the political stage. And I would not dismiss the Zoomers. Um, you know, it may take some work to encourage some of them to vote. They're not in the habit of voting in midterms yet. But nonetheless, I don't think they're going to stay home. They have very strong opinions. There are nearly 60 million of them who are going to be eligible to vote. And so this election is going to be a, a generational showdown as much as anything else. So I'd also like to look, you know, again, keeping on with this theme of why we're not in an average year, what are some other indications that this might not be an average year? Well, of course, we have had the Capitol insurrection of January 6, 2021. So this is the first midterm election since supporters of one party tried to ignore the result of a presidential election and storm the Capitol to obstruct the congressional certification of the electoral vote tally. That's unprecedented. That hasn't happened before. Now, I don't necessarily believe that the timetable for the Department of Justice or the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack is being determined by politics, but it could be the case. Salience matters when it comes to influencing public opinion. And the ideal time to have things happen to influence public opinion uh, when you're looking at electoral politics is in the summer before an election. So, you know, I have several times cynically suggested on the show that if I were doing, uh, you know, that if I was in charge of the investigation, I would want to hold public hearings in the summer before the midterms. Anything earlier than that, and it's just not salient enough to voters to actually make a difference in when it comes time for them to vote. And as, you know, delicious as an October surprise is, uh, anything later than that, and it'll be characterized as being too close to the election and too overtly political. Uh, so, you know, that's also out. So, you know, am I impatient? Yes, but, you know, wait until June. Uh, in terms of electoral politics, isn't necessarily the worst thing. Now, I know I've been frustrated with this moving target, you know, when it comes to the dates of the public hearings, but politically, the closer to July, the better. And if people really insist that Democrats are going to lose seats in Congress in November, then 
they ought to be obliged to take some accounting of how public hearings are going to play into the election. My baseline assumption, as I've repeated many times on the show, is that this there's going to be a strong effect. The public hearings are going to have a very strong effect. And uh, the comparison here is actually the Watergate midterms of 1974. Part of what this whole party in power narrative does is to ignore that that's not the only way to carve up the parties. Sometimes there's a major political scandal and you have a party that is, in effect, the perpetrator party. And that's what we had in the Watergate election in 1974. The Watergate babies. Huge class of Democrats who come in in the class of 1974 because, yes, he happened to be the incumbent, but again, you know, the perpetrator party in that instance was party of Richard Nixon, right? Tricky Dick Nixon. And, you know, no accident you have Roger Stone from, from the Nixon era also taking part uh, in the, the Trump coup attempt. So, again, it, you have a perpetrator party. You don't necessarily have to look at who the incumbent party is. Sometimes that's not the best way to cut it, right? And so what do we see when a party uh, does an attack on electoral democracy? Well, in 1974, we saw this wave of Watergate babies. We saw the biggest Democratic wave um, I think in 50 years. And so if, you know, there's a similar effect associated with January 6th, we might expect something similar. Then there's the question of, we may have actual members of Congress who may be implicated, right? Uh, I've taken to calling them the Sedition Caucus. These are people who may have won their primary before the hearings are actually held in June. Um, which puts the, their state parties in a kind of a bit of a pickle if it turns out that these people committed acts that could be criminally charged. This is not something that usually happens, so again, shows we may not be in an average year. Then there's the war in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine is a losing issue for Republicans, and they know it. In a poll from April 6th, Pew found that 72% of Democrats and 68% of Republicans now see Putin's Russia as an enemy of the United States of America. That is about as good bipartisan support as you're likely to see in the American public on any issue. And yet, many Republican elected officials and media figures are entirely out of step with the electorate. You have Tucker Carlson openly rooting for Russia on the most important conservative network. And there's this huge movement in public opinion that runs counter to what Carlson wants the Republicans to do. In January, just 41% of Americans saw Putin's Russia as an enemy. 49% saw Russia as a competitor, but not an enemy. And uh, there was a low baseline of 7% seeing Russia as a partner that's been cut in half by 3%. Uh, so it's within the margin of error of being zero, right? If you ask Americans if Russia is our partner, they say no. Overwhelming. And this alliance between Trump and Putin, oh, and by the way, many other Republicans as well, right? You know, people like Gosar, uh, Chris Carlson. You know, it's dragged many Republicans along with the idea that Putin is a friend. But... You know, now we're seeing sort of traditional 
conservative skepticism of Russia reemerge, and yet many of these elites, um, you know, are, are not actually playing along with it. They are still continuing to do things that to indicate their support and their loyalty to Vladimir Putin at a time when he is committing an imperialist war of aggression, nay, genocidal war crimes. So there's basically zero support for Putin in the United States right now, and that's extraordinary. The problem for Republicans is that the far right wing of the, the party, they just never got the memo. They still love Putin, and that's a huge problem because Putin right now is about as popular as Hitler. And, you know, uh, the people talk about, well, the, the progressives, they can, you know, we can use them to paint the whole Democratic Party as too liberal. Well, there's this sedition caucus that has sided with Putin. And that can be used effectively to attack the entire Republican Party, right? So we just had a vote um, on sending military aid to Ukraine at the end of April. And there are 10 Republicans who voted against sending military aid to Ukraine, which is fighting an existential battle for its very survival against Putin's Russia. So who are these Republicans? Andy Biggs, mention him again. Dan Bishop, Warren Davidson, Matt Gates, Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Thomas Massey, Ralph Norman, Scott Perry, and Tom Tiffany. So, it's the Sedition Caucus. It's, you know, big overlap between them and the 21 Republicans who voted against awarding medals to the Capitol Police in the wake of the January 6th attack. There are actual war crimes being committed in Ukraine practically daily. So this is this issue is a real dog for Republicans. And Democrats have the receipts to tie every Republican to the most extreme pro-Putin members of the Republican Party. So that's a political variable, right? There's an issue that really makes the Republican Party look extraordinarily bad. Even though you have many in the party who have tried to pivot away from Putin, Trump himself actually has been unusually quiet uh, on, on this very issue. Um, but it's not the only political consideration, right? So last week, we had the leak of the draft Alito decision in the Dobbs case to overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, historically, it's very, been very strange over the course of the last 50 years that despite their uh, anti-choice rhetoric, uh, Republicans have always found a fifth vote on the Supreme Court when it comes to upholding Roe. And there have been a lot of people, you know, talk about why this might be the case. Uh, it's a great issue for Republicans to mobilize their base. It's a great issue for them to raise money. And, um, you know, it's a great issue for them because they don't have to do anything. At the end of the day, they can always report, you know, point to the Supreme Court and say, well, we just passed this law, but really, our hands are tied. Now, with if this becomes the law of the land, that's no longer the case. If the Alito decision ultimately becomes the majority ruling of the Supreme Court, and there's no reason to believe it won't, um, Republicans' hands are no longer tied. Now, we don't think that Supreme Court justices, or at least the public don't tend to think of Supreme Court justices as people who take political considerations into account when they make judicial decisions, but of course they do. Um, 
The reason, in my opinion, why they haven't ever overturned Roe is because they know that overturning Roe would mean that the Republican Party is no longer nationally competitive as a major political party. And so overturning Roe is a human catastrophe. And politically, it is a catastrophe for the Republican Party. This is a seismic shift in politics in the United States. The court has basically said that over 50% of the nation's population no longer has bodily autonomy. And that is the kind of thing that changes people's decision calculus. How many Republican soccer moms out there have been consistently voting Republican because they like tax cuts? But they did so uh, believing that the Supreme Court would always protect Roe and uh, also, of course, incidentally, Griswold, right? Griswold v. Connecticut, the decision uh, effectively nationalizing the idea that, you know, you have a right to contraception. If this decision is actually uh, enacted by the court, we're looking at a generation in the wilderness for the entire Republican Party. Women, in particular, are going to be mobilized like never before. Women's March in 2017 uh, against Trump as he came in, right? Um, you know, this is something that we don't have a historical uh, analog to this. You know, what's the, what's the appropriate case to compare the overturning of a right that has existed for 50 years and protected by the Supreme Court uh, that's been overturned? Um, the only one that comes to mind is the Dred Scott decision, right? And where that ended, that ended up in, in, in civil war. So it's a huge seismic shift. And again, we don't know where it's going to land. But on paper, you know, when you've got a right that 70% of the population supports, it looks bad. It looks very bad, you know, for, for the midterms for Republicans. And so perhaps maybe factually the statement that Democrats are inevitably going to lose control of Congress, perhaps maybe that's not factually correct. Perhaps it's not an average year. Um, even if, by the way, even if the court comes to its senses, uh, peels off someone, maybe Kavanaugh, uh, and decides that the Dobbs opinion isn't going to be the majority opinion of the court, um, it has already had its effect. It has reminded voters of what's at stake. So if you hear people spouting this nonsense about how it's inevitable, the party in power always loses, in power in charge of the executive branch, always loses seats in Congress during a midterm election, ask them how they think Roe plays into it. Now, uh, here's my take, of course. After, I, I already thought that this was going to be a high turnout year for Democrats. A wave election, like the 1974 election, uh, basically because of um, the January 6th attack. Now, at this point, my guess is that we're going to have turnout in this election that rivals presidential election year turnout. Um, and this also, by the way, could be the, uh, the beginning a, of a new party system. This could be an electorally realigning election with Republicans continuing to be dominant in the South um, but not even the entire South, as states like Virginia, North Carolina, and Georgia turn from uh, purple to blue. And as the Republican Party just ceases to be electorally competitive across vast swaths of the rest of the country. So, 
Those are the exceptional circumstances, I believe, make it seem foolish to believe that there's some kind of inevitable midterm election loss that's going to happen uh, for Democrats in the House. Remember, the House. I put a pen in the Senate. Let's get back to that now. Here's how that plays out. The party in the White House doesn't always lose seats in the Senate midterm elections. Again, you know, we talk about this as a universal, but no, it's a fact that's most strongly observed in the House, and it tends to happen in the Senate, but it happens less in the Senate. In fact, you can even have a wave election in the House uh, and have the party in power lose no seats in the Senate. So, as I mentioned before, this is mainly due to the fact that the Senate has six-year terms, but elections are every two years, and as a consequence, there are three classes. Uh, the current class that's up for election is class three. And I will tell you something now that it's absolutely appalling to me that the media hasn't picked up on, which is that this was always shaping up to be a good year for Democrats in the Senate. And um, there's not really any doubt about that. How, 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 why do I say that? Well, the reason is because there are 34 seats that are up for election altogether. 20 of them are held by Republicans and 14 of them held by Democrats. So the baseline there is huge. Basically, a good Senate election year uh, for you potentially is when your opponent has more seats up for election and you don't. That maximizes their risk and maximizes the chance that you can actually pick up seats. So contrary to the false narrative that there's some inevitable loss of both houses of Congress, this is the best midterm prospect for Democrats that we've seen in quite some time. It's a good year for any given party when they have fewer seats that are up for grabs. Now, it is true that many of these Senate seats are in solidly Republican states, but there are actually a few that are in states that are genuinely competitive. Also, six Republican Senate incumbents have decided not to run for re-election. Six. That's huge. That means there are six seats formerly held by Republicans with no incumbent running and therefore no incumbency advantage. So remember, the last midterm Senate election was 2018, which should have been a huge year for Republicans. There were only there were, there were 25 senators in the Democratic caucus up for re-election. Two independents who, who caucus with Democrats, of course, and King and Sanders, um, against only eight Republicans. That should have been a huge year for Republicans. And instead, Republicans posted a net gain of only two seats. We've got the reverse of that now, or nearly. It's almost as good a year for Democrats as 2018 um, was for Republicans in terms of the class and the number of seats that are held by the, the respective parties. Another thing, of course, to consider is the fact that you can't gerrymander your way to victory in the Senate. Now, I'm not saying that this is going to be easy, but, you know, I see some races where Democrats could pick up seats, potentially. Ohio, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, in particular. So, again, I'd like to normalize the practice of saying, I don't know. I don't know if Democrats retain control of Congress. Uh, but I do know that even if they do lose seats in the House, it, there is possible they could even pick up seats, seats in the Senate. And, you know, you could have a situation where, you know, they don't need, like, uh, Manchin and Cinema in every vote. 
Um, or, or, you know, again, it, it's also possible that Democrats just win. They win actually stronger majorities in both houses, as we saw uh, for George Bush in the 2004 midterm election, right? The country was attacked in 2001. What happened? You had a rally around the flag effect. The country was attacked in 2021 on January 6th. Could we have a rally around the flag effect? Could the Democratic base be mobilized to defend democracy? I think yes. Are uh, people going to be upset about the possible overturning of Roe? You know, again, if it's actually overturned, that's, you know, a whole different kettle, kettle of fish. And, you know, I think that this the whole reason why we're having this discussion right now could be because Republicans feel like this is the beginning of the end. That they, you know, they can try to lock this in because they know they are facing a wave election. But, you know, when people say, oh, it's an inevitability that Democrats are going to lose seats because they control the White House, you know, I would like to normalize saying, I don't know. And I, I'd like to think that, you know, these reasons I've given would suffice for a reasonable person to come to the conclusion that maybe this year is a little bit different. And maybe there are factors that are happening this year that say that, you know what, we can't just go by what happens on average. We at least should look, uh, if we're going to look at history, look at specific case studies and examples uh, that perhaps might be, you know, kind of a, a matched pair comparison using small end methods as opposed to, you know, just saying, on average, they lose seats and that's it. Because that's just Philistine pig ignorance. All right, next two reasons, right? First reason, again, you know, doesn't always happen. It's not just not empirically, it's just not a thing that you can say, you can posit it as a law. Second thing, defeatism. Fostering the, this idea that Democrats are inevitably going to lose control of Congress in 2022 is a defeatist narrative. This isn't the time for defeatism. What's needed is an all-hands-on-deck, grassroots effort to register voters and get out the vote. Activism a key, is a key but often overlooked variable in election outcomes. It's really pretty simple. When Democrats get out there and hustle, when Democrats knock on the doors in neighborhoods that they need to knock to win, Democrats win. We should always you know, tend to look at the behavior of voters, but it's worth considering the behavior of political activists as well. You know, Why are people going to give up their time with their families to go knock doors if the media keep telling them that it's inevitable that Democrats are going to lose control of Congress? It doesn't make sense. Now, we know that the outcome is vital to democracy, so people should stop pretending that it's a foregone conclusion so that Democratic Party activists can actually make the case, to take the case to uh, people in the electorate and get them to vote, right? So that's the hard work of electoral politics. And that's what is needful at this current time. You have to contact, you know, someone uh, three times to basically make sure that, you know, you can get them to vote. Um, Face-to-face -face contact with someone from a campaign is one of the leading predictors of voting behavior uh, by people who otherwise may not vote. Irregular voters all across the country, uh, people are going to have to go out and target younger voters, irregular voters, people who, again, when I say irregular voters, I mean people who vote irregularly, who vote in presidential years, and who may not vote in local elections or midterm elections. 
So this is not a great time for this defeatist narrative. And I see people who, you know, will say, I really hope that, uh, you know, there's accountability and, you know, democracy is extremely important. Who nonetheless act as though and make pronouncements, confident pronouncements, that, you know, it's all over. And I don't think it's true. I don't think it's factually accurate. And the behavior that you're fostering by making these kinds of statements doesn't align with your values. And finally, uh, and again this goes back to the title of the episode, midterm election fraud. Republicans are going to say that there's midterm election fraud. So repeating this claim as though it was universal reinforces the attack on the faith in elections and on voting rights in the United States. The one thing that we absolutely know for sure is that the reaction of the Republican Party to the 2022 midterm elections will be to say that Democrats cheated. They will say that there was cheating if Democrats win, as Trump did in 2016, and they will pound that message message even more uh, as Trump did in 2020. So, you know, win or lose, the Trumpist movement is going to say um, the Democrats cheated, right? You know, and I got that backwards, right? So, you know, Trump wins in 2016, says Democrats cheated, they overcame it. Trump loses in 2020, says Democrats cheated, you know, and now we have to storm the Capitol. So, you can see all kinds of bad things coming out of this, right? So, claiming that Democrats are certainly 100% going to lose the 2022 midterm elections endangers democracy. As it stands, you know, all Trumpist movement has to do is to use the words of journalists and opinion leaders. So I just have a couple of examples to give you a little bit of the flavor. Uh, Here's from BBC, uh, Anthony Zercher. Title of the article is Midterms 2022. What will Republicans do if they win Congress? At least there's an if in there. Quote, the Republican Party is widely expected to win at least one chamber of Congress in the midterm elections later this year. At least he said widely expected rather than inevitably. Quote, according to polls, a plurality of Americans plan to vote for Republican congressional candidates. A good sign of impending success. End quote. Again, that's not how we do it, right? It's not a plurality of all Americans. You have to look at things state by state and district by district. But, you know, again, just making the supposition, you know, this could wind up in something that Navarro is going to write, right? To bolster claims of election fraud. So, well done, BBC. Here's something from MSNBC from a Michael A. Cohen. Uh, apparently not to be confused with the other one. Quote, this is the, the headline, Inflation dooms Dems midterm chances, so they should do as much as they can now. End quote. So as someone who apparently supports uh, what Democrats are doing, but uses the word dooms? It dooms? I mean, that's just, that's just crazy. You know, if I was a Democratic activist reading this, why would I bother going, it's, we're doomed. Quote, rather than fight the prevailing political winds, Democrats would be better off acknowledging the reality that the midterm elections are going to be a bloodbath and focus instead on accomplishing as much as possible before then. The politics be damned. End quote. Oh, uh, this is absolutely like, this is just the worst, right? Don't bother with an election. Don't fight those prevailing political winds. Don't knock on people's doors and take the case to voters as if this was something that matters. Just give up now and try to 
pass whatever you can. That is horrible. That is just risible. That is, you know, absolutely, yeah, the, honestly, I don't know why anyone who actually supposedly cared about trying to get something done uh, in the Biden administration would say that, you know, Democrats shouldn't fight prevailing political wins. First off, you get the political wins wrong, okay? You know, they put you put this out there, and then, oh, hey, by the way, uh, Republicans just alienated 70% uh, of Americans who support reproductive health. So, you know what? Maybe you should get normalized this phrase. I don't know. How about that? Put that on for a try. Stop using words like doom. Stop using words like inevitable. And, you know, start trying to actually think about the actual particular circumstances rather than repeating something that you may have read uh, from Nate Silver one time. February 23rd, final article. Quote, midterms and the most powerful force in American politics, from Alan Greenblatt. Quote, the loss of congressional and legislative seats in presidential midterms is essentially a given. The president's party has lost U.S. House seats in every election since the end of World War II, with only two exceptions. Losses are even greater when there's unified control of government. There's no reason to think this year is going to be any different, with Republicans leading in generic House polling and the number of House Democrats retiring at a 30-year high. President Biden's approval ratings are poor, and polling shows a large majority of Americans believe the country is on the wrong track. End quote. Again, there, I just gave you lots of reasons, right? You know, anything can happen. You know, the, I would like, if you have to have some kind of old saw to hang your hat on, you know, there's a saying that a year is an eternity in politics. Try this one for size. You know, June to November, you know, five months, that's an eternity in politics, right? So, you know, instead of saying this inevitable, say, I don't know, five months is an eternity in politics. Maybe something will happen. Maybe there's going to be a genocidal war. Maybe the Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade. Little things like that can alter the political landscape seismically rather than this average thing that you heard someone repeat and now say to make yourself feel smart on television. Finally, I thought the last one was the last one, but it's not. From CNN, quote, The political environment is terrible for Democrats, and it may get worse. From May 2nd by Stephen Collinson. Quote, Joe Biden's term has become a punchline, even to the president. End quote. That was uh, based on the, the uh, correspondence uh, dinner party thing. Quote, it's possible that high gas prices, the worst inflation in 40 years, the war in Ukraine, and a persistent pandemic could all ease by November. But the trajectory of those crises and the impact they exert on issues that matter to and can hurt Americans, like the price of groceries, could also get worse. Quote, So it's quite likely that the daunting conditions that are currently depressing Democrats' hopes could actually get worse before Election Day. Quote, All of this explains a sense of inevitability settling into Washington's conventional wisdom that Republicans are strongly favored to retake the House of Representatives, while the Senate could go red too. So, all of these things 
these are going to be repeated and cited and amplified by election fraud hucksters if Democrats retain control of Congress. This, is, this isn't helpful. And, you know, if you're saying that something is conventional wisdom, maybe you shouldn't say it. You're, you're some kind of pundit. You're a writer. Be creative. Try to find an idea that might, perhaps might be counterintuitive, right? Try to, to actually do some thinking rather than repeating things that you say every midterm election cycle. So, you know, same people who last weekend, by the way, were saying all this stuff, suddenly they changed course. What happened? You're seeing a lot less of this now uh, with the, the pending uh, leak of the Alito-Dobbs decision, right? Um, you know, I'm sure that they're, they're, one of the reasons why there's radio silence on this defeatism at the moment is because um, they're trying to figure out how this is going to hurt Democrats, right? They're trying to figure out, like, how pissing off 70% of Americans uh, is, is going to hurt Democrats because that's the narrative that they would really like to push. So, you know, again, but the main thing, and, and you know, and the scariest part of, of all of this is that pushing this narrative endangers democracy. When people push this idea that Democrats are inevitably going to lose, it's a lot like they did with the bellwethers. Bellwethers are not a thing, right? If someone loses a bellwether, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, if you have a lot of states and you have a lot of different municipalities and you have a lot of different counties, you're going to have some of them just correlate randomly with the, the national results. That's just a thing. It's not really an empirical regularity at all. It's just something that happens. It's because of math. Um, and this, you know, again, you know, pushing this narrative just basically says, hey, just take my stuff. You can cite it after the election during the next time you storm the Capitol or even state capitals all across the country. So, you know, if you want to write me, um, I'm on Twitter, Cap Interrupt. Thank you so much. Uh, again, you know, if you want advice or information on, uh, you know, how to, to stop saying things that are, are dumb and not necessarily empirically supported just because it sounds like something that you already believe, go for it. I mean, just shoot me a line. I'll give you a better story idea than just repeating the same thing that you say every midterm election. Thanks so much and have a wonderful day.